0: what's good everybody just hit 20 fucking episodes let's get it Charler Brothers fights this past weekend. What are you gonna do? You know, I predicted they would both lose and I was very much incorrect about that. Um, And that's sometimes the fucking risk you take when you do predictions, man. As much as it's like a cool opportunity to look like you could read the future, it's also an equally good opportunity to uh, be super wrong and look like a hater and an asshole. But Um, you know, I thought that the guys they were stepping up to fight, that they were moving up into a a league, you know, a level of competition that neither of them had particularly been to yet. Um, and I think a a combination in both fights of them being better than I was giving them credit for, and at least in the Jamel fight, you know, Rosario maybe not being as durable as I thought, um... But before we talk about that, those fights in that card, because that was a huge night for boxing. There was just a couple of other cards I wanted to get to real quick. First of all, Josh Taylor got a first round knockout on Saturday against his mandatory Apinan song, Who I don't really understand why he was the mandatory for this fight. I mean, Josh Taylor, as far as I know, has two different belts. He's the top guy at one forty, um, outside of Jose Ramirez. And it seems ridiculous that somebody on this level that was this young and kind of inexperienced and hadn't fought any opposition of significance for the most part, why he would be the mandatory. This is where I start getting confused about what the belts are and what the role of the belts is, because, you know, when you see mandatories and it's tough guys, it's it kind of makes sense, right? Like we're forcing the very, very best to be accountable to fighting a certain level of opposition. I don't feel like this was that. It was a a really weird mismatch, you know? I looked Kong Song up on BoxRec and he was ranked like 160th or something. So the idea that someone that's not in the top 100 on BoxRec would ever be the mandatory for a title seems ridiculous to me. So I think this was just alphabet soup bullshit. And um, hopefully we can get Taylor Ramirez as soon as possible. There's really nothing to even talk about with this fight. He landed a weird right hand to the body. The guy went down, couldn't get up. You know, I'm, again, I'm not hating on Kong Song. He's, a, you know, he's. I'm sure he's a good young fighter. It's just like, how do these guys wind up in these fucking world-class opportunities? You know, especially in a stacked division like that. Where there's an abundance of talent for Taylor to have, you know, exclusively challenging fights. Why a fight like this could ever happen is beyond me. I don't fucking get it. But, aside from that, Taylor looked good. You know, he looked tall. He looked like he's gonna be, he looked like the fucking future welterweight champion, if I'm being honest. He's a big, tall guy for a junior welterweight. And uh, once he fights Ramirez, I think he's probably gonna beat Ramirez. That's just my opinion. I think he's a better, longer, more explosive version of Postol, of Victor Postol. But uh, that's obviously the fight to make it 140. Hopefully they make that as soon as possible. Also this weekend, uh, the World Boxing Super Series for cruiserweights finally fucking ended. Uh, Myra's Bredis winning a majority decision over Uniel Dorticos from Cuba. It, this wasn't like a barn burner, necessarily. This is not a phone booth fight, Gotti Ward shit, but this was a really, really good fight. If you got the zone, I would recommend you go back and watch this because there's something cool about the cruiserweight division where it's an odd combination of heavyweight power but light heavyweight athleticism. So that risk of the one punch, you know, changing the fight is still there. It's just that they're a little a little bit smaller and more athletic. Um, this was a fun fight. Bradis is a very impressive guy. He's 27 and one, 19 knockouts. The one is to Alexander Usyk. Uh, the former undisputed champion at cruiserweight who's moved up to heavyweight. That's his only loss, is to Usyk. And it was a very close fight. Um, you know, Dorticos is a very tough guy. Very long, nice jab. He tried to be on the front foot the whole time, but Bradis was just a little too slick on his feet, man. And and essentially gave him a boxing lesson despite being shorter, having you know less of a reach. He just had better feet. He had a, a denser arsenal to go to. It felt like... You know, Dorticos was trying to come forward, again, use his long jab, try to throw the right hand as much as possible, but he just couldn't be busy enough, and I think it got too challenging to hit Bredas in the head, and so he would try to, you know, work the body and pin him on the ropes, but Bredas' feet were tremendous. Um, A lot of these top-level cruiserweights, I think young heavyweights should be looking at for footwork because it's not it's guys that aren't that much smaller than you in theory and um it's a more athletic version of heavyweight so this was a cool fight both of these guys fought back in june of 2019 and i think bradis won against a guy named kurzestov glavaki and there were some fouls at the end of the fight i don't remember exactly how it went but i remember watching it there were some fouls at the end of the fight and there was some dispute as to why and how the fight ended And I believe Glovaki protested either with the belt or with the World Boxing Super Series. Um, And nothing came of that. And then we had COVID and the pandemic. And so, you know, it basically left these guys waiting for 15 months to finish out a fucking tournament. But I think what you saw probably is the two best cruiserweights in the world fight. And I think you can confidently say that at the moment that Myrus Breitas is the number one cruiserweight on the planet think you can say that pretty confidently. This is also the second season of the World Boxing Super Series. And while I love the concept, it just seems like it takes too fucking long. You know, the Josh Taylor-Progray fight took like nine, eight, nine months to make. Same with the Donaire and uh, Inouye fights. So I would love to see them keep doing this because it forces the best in certain divisions to fight each other, but it also fucking takes forever. And I'm not... I'm unclear as to why that's happening. Did a little research. Couldn't find much on it. Um, So, yeah, if you know something about it, drop it down in the comments. I would love to know why they take 9 to 15 months to put a fight together. Um, So, that's it for that. So, as far as this Charlo doubleheader, um, great fucking undercard. The way it was set up was they split it. If you didn't buy the fight, it was set up into essentially two separate pay-per-view cards where, you know, uh, Jamal and Derebuchenko headlining part one Jermel and Jason Rosario headlining part two um, and the first part of the card had um, John Real Casimero uh, a, a, I believe he's a champion at 112 pounds if not 115 I might even be wrong about that he might be champion at 118 but very awkward style explosive puncher five foot two and a half or whatever not a you know very short guy but super awkward to deal with you know you had Brandon Figueroa after that really putting it on um this guy Vasquez who is related to Israel Vasquez Damian Vasquez um the nephew of Israel Vasquez really put it on him that fight probably went on a little bit too long and then we had Jamal Charlo against Sergei I'm gonna start with this because I talk about it every time I feel this way. The scorecards on this first fight, the Charles Oliveira fight, were very wide, and I did not see a wide fight. I saw a close fight. I didn't really score it um, like formally the first time I watched it live, but I scored it after the fact, and I scored the fight 114 to 114. I would have to go back and watch it again. Maybe score it again. Obviously, when you're scoring a fight live, you really only get one chance. But me, being unbiased, I scored the fight 114 to 114, which is six rounds to six. I think the way I had it set up, I had Charlo up 6-3 through nine. And I thought there, won the last three rounds. So, that being said, though. You know, the fight did look somewhat similar to what I thought it could look like. The difference is that Jamal adjusted. You know, Jamal, Jamal's boxing skills, to me, were much more consistent and tricky than I was given credit for. You know, he he uses jab real nice. He's got nice, long punches. And there was, you know, at least through the first four or five rounds, he really did a nice job of keeping Derevyanchenko at the end of his length and keeping the fight on his terms with just long punches. And, at, you know, ultimately, he buzzed Dereviachenko a little bit early. And he really had control over the pace and the geography of the fight, per basically through the first five, six rounds. And eventually, you know, Dereviachenko being the world-class guy that he is, you know, he started getting on the inside started landing some body shots, started landing that right hand, the straight right hand and the roundhouse over the top, you know, and I would say down the stretch that it was a very competitive fight and, you know, that Derevyuchenko at times could pin Charlo on the ropes and could land combinations, but there was also a lot of instances of him getting Charlo on the ropes and, and, you know, Charlo doing something to fuck his timing up, you know, whether it be you know, sticking that long jab out there or feinting or tying up. Uh, but he was really good about not letting Derevichenko get set for long periods of time, even if he got, he would get a little combination off. Um, you know, Charlo always had something for him or would eventually just make him start missing. And, you know, I think down the stretch he, he took his foot off the gas a little bit. I think he could have... I think he could have closed the show a little stronger. But again, it's like, you know, I said he wasn't going to win at all and he won the fight. But, um, you know, the other thing that he does that I really like, my favorite little move that he does is his check hook. And the check hook, if you don't know, is essentially you're throwing your front hand hook as you're stepping back and your opponent is stepping forward. So therefore, momentum is coming. You're turning it over and sort of rolling out. And he does that move really well, and it made Derevyanchenko very hesitant to, to charge him and try to get in his space. And, um, and that part was very impressive, man, between the, the, the long jabs and the long right hands, the check hooks when Derevyanchenko would try to get in on the inside. It just made it very difficult for Derevyanchenko to do what he wanted to do. But when he was able to, when he was able to get Charlo on the inside and pin him in spots... He landed a lot of effective shots, but at the end of the day, the way you're scoring the fight is round by round, you know, who's controlling the greatest amount of time, who's landing the clean effective punches, and who's working, you know, the most consistently. You know, you have to look at round, each round as, you know, who would I rather be at the end of that round. This fight had a lot of close rounds. Which is frustrating to see scorecards like one eighteen, one ten, one seventeen, one eleven. Even one sixteen, one twelve, you know, that's at least like within the realm of reality, but this seemed like a uh, more of a flip a coin kind of fight than the the scores would indicate. And I think that's unfortunate because, you know, what would have happened if Daraviachenko did even better than that? Would they have been paying attention? You know, would the judges you know, have taken notice of the work he was doing. So that, that part of it is, is frustrating as a fan. You know, you want to see, you want to see these guys get a fair shake, man. You want to see everybody get a fucking 50, 50 chance in every fight. Like you have to win the fight to win the fight. And, um, that's ultimately been one of my biggest critiques of the Charlos over time. And that's, I mean, that's not necessarily even their responsibility that, They've been the beneficiaries of, you know, being the A-side, favorable judging, favorable commentary, you know. And that's why I think it was so surprising for Jamel to lose that decision to Tony Harrison. Because they're sort of used to, oh, you know, this is how much I have to do to win a decision. And over time, you do that often enough. And what you think it takes to win a round gets a little bit skewed. I think as they go up in competition though, their intensity ramps up, their passion ramps up. That's what's great about these guys, man. They really are passionate. You know, they're they're passionate athletes. They love what they do. They want to show you, they want to fucking prove it to you. They want to prove people like me fucking wrong. You know, and you got to like that, man. How can you not fucking like that? That's just good entertainment as far as I'm concerned. Um and, and I guess that's a a good segue into the second part of the card, which had, uh, Jermell Charlo taking on Jason Rosario. And, uh, this was a, a weird little fight, man. This was a weird little fight. First of all, you know, I feel like Jermell is a little bit more of an explosive wide swinger than Jamal. Um, the, the, power even though he's got a lower knockout percentage the power is just jarring it, it comes out of nowhere and you know Rosario felt that so you know my prediction on this fight my thinking on this fight was that you know having seen Rosario against J Rock I thought that and because Julian Williams fucking hit Rosario very hard in that fight and it it didn't really move him too much My thinking was that, you know, Rosario was going to be able to basically handle Charlo's power and that his power and pressure over time was going to get to him. And that later on in the fight, you know, he'd be rolling downhill a little bit and either get a late round stoppage or win a decision, you know. And that's not what happened. What happened was they came out and. You know, even though Charlo's j- the, you know, Jamel's jab is a little less consistent, you know, he's a little more unpredictable than Jamal. And he can fight off the back foot. You know, he kind of pounces like he'll be moving, 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 and just swing something crazy at you. So you have to be very aware. And as a result, you know, Rosario gets dropped in the first. You know, and you could see he was a little buzzed. It was like a weird knockdown, but it was up on the, you know, up on the top of the head clearly rung his bell a little bit and he didn't really get into the fight until round three or four and so starting in round three or four what you see is Rosario in stretches is able to you know similarly to Dereviachenko kind of get Jermel on the ropes land a couple of body shots in combination and you could hear the power on his shots you know you could hear that he hit very hard you could hear that you know, when he really sat down and let it go, that that the power was real. But ultimately, what happened is then Charlo dropped him again, I believe, in the sixth. And I think legitimately buzzed him. And it was very close to the end of the round. I think Rosario got lucky. in between those knockdowns, what you had was a super competitive fight. You know, Rosario, at times, able to land combinations. Charlo, at times, able to fight really nicely off the back foot, fainting, jabbing, you know, kind of throwing something wild and unpredictable to keep Rosario, you know, with his hands in his pockets a little more. And then what was really smart, too, because Jamel's upper body movement and head movement is so good, you know, eventually Rosario's reaching, and eventually he's following, and he's a little impatient. And he's not, you know, cutting the ring off. And you could tell by the sixth round that at least tactically... Jamel had a pretty good grip on, on what he needed to do. And then in the 8th, it happened, man. Out of fucking nowhere, this little jab to the body puts Rosario down, and it looked like he had a seizure. I, I don't think he did. I think what happened was he got hit in the diaphragm or in the abdomen when he wasn't engaged and he wasn't ready for it, and it knocked the wind out of him. But it looked like a seizure, but he literally just sat on the canvas, you know, gulping for air. And it was it was hard to watch, actually. And it's it was such a sudden punch. There's one other instance I can think of of a fighter getting knocked out to the body, and I can't remember the opponent. But I do remember that at one time, Sergey Kovalev knocked somebody out with a jab to the body. It's very rare that you see that, but... It's an odd mechanics, right? Because if you're coming forward, your abdomen's not engaged or you're, you're on your exhale and I slip it in and I, I have nice form and I'm rooted in my feet, like, there is something about the physics of that, of you coming toward me and of me sticking it out at the right time, you know, it hits you right at the, the peak point of power, you know, that's a hard punch to take and I think it's just a testament to Jermell's punching power, you know, he's really a very, very explosive puncher. Um, which, again, I wasn't really giving him enough credit for that. I didn't think, just based on the shots that Williams had hit Rosario with, I didn't think Jamel could hurt him, and that's where I had the fight wrong. I didn't think that there was really the possibility that on a one-punch basis that, you know, Charlo could completely fuck with Rosario's game plan and have him, you know, keeping his hands in his pocket. I I didn't think that was what was going to happen but that's what happened and that's what you know that's what great fighters do is they adjust to their opponent's strength you know they adjust in the moment they make changes on the fly and it, the truth is man anything this guy Rosario was going to do I think over time Jamel had an answer for it man you know it got to a couple of points too where he was holding a lot and Rosario would get would get close to him you tie him right up you know walk him to the center and You know, I don't think Rosario's inside game is real sophisticated. You know, there's the other side of it, too, where Rosario's boxing game needs a lot of work. And, you know, he was able to hurt Julian Williams. He was able to hit Williams. You know, I can't necessarily speak to that performance, but just comparatively as two elite-level guys, it seems like maybe that was an, an off night for Williams. And less about you know what a killer Rosario is I think he's still a tough kid you know he's 25 years old he's 20 and 2 with 14 knockouts you know he is a good fighter I think that he could still be a factor at 154 but he wasn't any match for this guy ultimately you know even if in stretches he could make the fight competitive and even win some rounds I would say I think he won 2 or 3 rounds of the fight you know The other thing I noticed too, if I'm being brutally honest, he looked a little bit overtrained. Um, his legs didn't look great to me. His punch resistance didn't look great to me. And he looked a little drawn at the weigh in. That's just my opinion. You know, those are the generally the signs of somebody that struggled to make weight. If your punch resistance isn't that good, you look a little drained, you know, you're not as explosive. Um, and that, you know, that's on him. I'm not. I'm not making excuses for him just because I predicted he would win, but I am saying that he looked a little overtrained. And that's something that he's going to have to work on, you know, in these big fights of knowing that point. What's the point where the training is beneficial and what's the point where it kind of stops helping me? Um, and he has to find that for himself, ultimately. I think that that point is different for everybody. I bet if you ask somebody like the Charlos, they would tell you there is no point you know I'm going to fucking train till I fucking hit the floor that doesn't really work for everybody you know and I'm sure you know even with all the lines only shit and whatever I'm sure the charlos have a very good idea very good gauge of what that point that training point is like I got to cut it off now cuz if I don't cut it off now it's going to stop being advantageous it's going to start hurting me um so these are all lessons for Rosario, and I think the both of the Charlo brothers ultimately had great performances. They probably learned a lot for themselves going forward. I mean, particularly Jamal, you know, being in such a, you know, a physical testing fight, you know, when you come out of the other side on that, that can only make you better. Because I don't think, you know, it wasn't like such a physical, you know, Barrera-Morales fight where I feel like it took years off, but... It was a rough fight against a top-level guy who's shown he's a top-level guy against other top-level guys. And, um, you know, I think it opens up the door for Jamal to be like, you know, one of these dudes has to fight me. Be it Danny Jacobs, Golovkin, Demetrius Andrade. Somebody's got to start fucking paying attention and fight this guy. I think Andrade and, and Jamal is the fight you know and i think that's one you can make because they're both you know um they're both middleweights they're both in their prime why the fuck not they're both having a hard time getting golovkin and 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 dudes of that caliber so why not make that fight happen now as far as Jamel, you know they talked about it a bunch but junior middleweight is really stacked right now it's really a very stacked weight class he has a lot of options my personal pick for his next fight, I would choose one of two fighters. I would have Jamel fight either everslandy Lara, who you, the the Cuban champion, who you've heard me talk about a bunch on this show, or I would have him fight Jarrett Hurd, who is actually the last guy to beat Arislandi Lara. I think that both of those guys would give him a very difficult time, and beating either of them I think would only further... Solidify that he's the number one guy in the division i think he did that in this fight this was, this fight was his way of being like this is my fucking weight class i got three well he's got three belts now so he's the unified champion you know everybody has to go through him now um or he needs to fight the other champion patrick Teixeira from uh from brazil and and uh and unify the division man have an undisputed junior middleweight champion you know, that's something to fucking get excited about. And he's three out of three out of four belts, you know. Um, and if he's not going to fight any of those guys, he's got Julian Williams. He's got Brian Castaño. He's got a lot of very, very difficult, legitimate opponents to go to. Jamal's options are not quite as wide open because of the promotional difficulties. But as far as the boxing landscape I want to see these guys in with the top because they are the top now. There's no denying that with the, with the level of opponents they've beaten here. Um, this next weekend on Saturday, Jose Zepeda is going to fight Ivan Baranchik. Very excited about that fucking matchup. That's a nice matchup of junior welterweight contenders. That's going to be on ESPN plus definitely recommend watching that. And, um, that's it for this week, guys. I, uh, appreciate you tuning into episode 20 of the slip and weave podcast this has been fucking way fun doing this every week i appreciate you guys when you hit me up and shit like it means a lot um yeah so i'll see you guys next week and hopefully i don't get any more fucking predictions wrong anytime soon all right take it easy guys peace